Good morning. It's great to see all the excitement and energy going on this morning. Um, my name is Adri. I, uh, I've been part of this church for about 12 years now. It's been a little while. As you heard, uh, pastors um, Jamie and Heidi are down in Arizona. So uh, it happens once in a while if they're out of town, they ask me to speak. So today is one of those opportunities. Uh, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and specifically work with students who study abroad, so that's my daytime job. But I'm glad here to, to give a sermon of today. We're continuing in our series on the books, uh, Book of Galatians. And um, we'll just dive straight in. Um, I always like to give a little bit of background, even though we've been in this book for a little while. It's maybe a refresher for you as we continue um, reading, and we're going to look at chapter 4 today. So the Book of Galatians is written by Paul around 49 AD, might have been a few years earlier, a few years later. And it's to the churches of Galatia. So it's not to one particular church, it's churches in, a, in an area that is nowadays central Turkey. And so Paul has been there, has visited these places, multiple of these places, and this is who he's speaking to, who he's writing to. And these areas, they're both Gentile and Jewish believers, but he's mainly talking to Gentile believers. And the Hebrew, or the, sorry, the Greek word that Paul uses there is ethnos, which you might recognize from ethnicity. So uh, what he's really saying, I'm talking to the nations, excluding the Jewish nation, right? So he's the, everybody who's not Jew, that's what Gentile means. And that's mainly who he's talking about in this book. And throughout this book, we find out that he's visited Galatia, the Galatian churches before. He has preached there. We even know what he has preached. He said, only faith in Jesus can save you. But there's also this other group that is a little nebulous. Um, they're not named, but we know that they believe that you need to follow the Mosaic law, that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul writes a very strong rebuke. When I was reading it, and I had to read through the book of Galatians a few times, because whenever Paul says things, it's so dense, and it takes you several times of reading to even really understand what he's saying. A lot of the time, it felt like it was yelling at me. <laughs> or, you know, like people that use the caps lock function on their keyboard, and they don't know how to turn it off. That's kind of what a lot of, of the book of Galatians feels like. So there's a few things that we learn in the chapters before we get to chapter 4 that are helpful to understand as we're going to dive in. In chapter 1, again, we find out there's this group of people that are not particularly named, but they're teaching something that's not of God. Um, Paul actually says it's no gospel at all. Then in ch chapter 2, we're introduced to the disciple Peter, and Paul pretty much calls him a flip-flop. He just changes his opinion. One, at one moment, he's hanging out with the Gentiles and having a good time. Then some other Jewish people show up, and he's like, ooh, now I'm hanging out with them, and it's kind of weird, and I really should be following the law. And so he kind of goes and not hang out with the Gentiles. And so Paul, he's, he's rebuking everybody anyway. Why not rebuke Peter as well, right? So he does that in chapter 2. And then we get in chapter 3, and there Paul more strongly says, like, following the law, following all these rules is not going to save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ will. And so then we get to chapter 4, and I would like to read chapter 4, 8 through 22. So you can open your Bibles to that, or it's going to be here in the, in the back in a second as well. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? 
Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, I was, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Lord God, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word, uh, even when your word is hard, even when it's a rebuke. Uh, Lord, we pray that whatever you have for us today will reach our heart. And uh, even if those are different parts of this text, um, we invite your Holy Spirit uh, and we open our hearts as we continue to dive into what you have to say to us today. Amen. So let me give you a little bit more context. Again, these are, this is written to the churches of Galatia. Um, so the people there would have had a mixture of religions. Uh, part of them might have been Roman, some of them might have been Greek. Uh, they're actually, um, uh, their, their background, their ethnicity is Celtic, which is interesting. You might think of Celtic people in, in Ireland or Scotland, but at the time the, Celtics lived, uh, the Celts lived all through Europe, all the way uh, even down into Turkey. And so these were these pagan gods that they were worshiping. And um, they would have to do rituals. They would have to do certain festivals in the names of their gods. They have to do certain sacrifices. And Paul says that they were slaves to these gods before they became uh, Christians. And they were slaves to this particular religion. And then Paul, in, the, in chapter 4, starts talking about um, how he met them, and it's kind of remarkable. Um, the way he met them is through his sickness. And, and what kind of sickness, we don't really know, but there's this weird phrase that he says, like, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me, making me wonder if maybe there was something wrong with his eyes. Either way, he was helpless, and that might have been the only reason why he stopped there in the first place. And the Galatians were a blessing to Paul. They helped him, they nurtured him back to health, and at the same time, Paul was able to share the gospel with them, and so was a blessing to them. And so as they received the gospel, they also received the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, okay, we have this relationship that you, you're aware of, but now there is this relationship you have with these other people, and he's contrasting them. And he says again, like it's just a named people group, those people he's talking about. And he says, instead of them blessing you, what they're doing is they're enslaving you with more rules. And they're not doing it for you, they're doing it for their own gain. And they do it to separate Paul from the Galatians. And so Paul uses this word, he is perplexed. Feels like, again, caps lock, yelling, like, I'm perplexed, why are you doing this? The Galatians were set free. 
They didn't have to follow the rituals anymore of their former gods, the festivals and sacrifices of their former religion. But now they're choosing to be slaves to something new, the law, which also comes with rules and that they need to follow. And so Paul says, he uses interesting language. He says, if you do this, if you follow the law, you are cursed. Strong language again. In, 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 in chapter 3, just a chapter before this, he says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. However, by dying on the cross, Jesus took the curse of the law, so that the blessing to Abraham is now extended to us through faith. So he says that the law is a curse. I mean, this is, this is why I had to read the book of Galatians like four or five times and trying to like, I think I understand. Once in a while, like, like this is not how we talk about the law in the Old Testament, right? But now he's calling it a, a curse. Like, if that is the case, then why have the law at all? Why did God even give it? I think there's two reasons for that. One, the law shows what actions are sinful. In a way, God has gracefully told us this is my ethical framework. This is what is right, and this is what is wrong. Until that time, we didn't really know. We kind of had to guess, but we now know what is right and what is wrong. The second thing is that the law shows us that we are sinful. The moment we compare the law to our own lives, we see, oh, there's a few things I haven't quite done right. And only people who are aware that they are sinful know that they need to be saved. Why would I need to be saved if I haven't sinned? It's kind of the same thing as the first step uh, of AA, where we say the first step towards recovery is admitting you have a problem at all. If there's no problem, we don't need any solution. And I think it's one of the reasons why we don't really like talking about sin in the first place. I used the S word in church, what am I doing? It makes us feel uncomfortable. And it's because we have to admit we have a problem. And when we admit we have that problem, then only can we receive the help that only Jesus can give us. Another point that Paul makes about the law is also interesting. He says, it's only ever meant to have been temporary. It wasn't something that should have been there forever. Until now, we have kind of clumped the law and circumcision together. But circumcision came with the promise that God gave Abraham that through Isaac, and then through the Jewish people, and eventually specifically through Jesus, as Paul says, he uses, God uses the word seed, singular, one person, all the nations will be blessed. So that was the covenant. Then Paul says, it took 430 years before we even got the law. And then the law was only there until it was fulfilled by Jesus, through Jesus. And so the law was ever only meant to be temporary. So knowing all these things, you wonder, like, why would the Galatians choose the law? Why would they choose to live under it, even though there are so many things they need to do um, in order to, to follow it, and, and they believe to be saved by it? Why would you choose that instead of um, knowing that you simply have to accept Jesus and have faith in him? And I'm going to try to drink some water. The screw top was giving me some uh, pain here. So I think this is where we kind of get to the, the center of the sermon today. It's actually named, it's called Free to Trust. I think this is all about control versus trust. Now, most of you probably know of the trust fall. 
if you might have been part of a team building exercise, or maybe you've just done it with friends. You stand there in the room, and you, maybe you close your eyes, your friends are standing behind you, and you slowly go backwards, right? And this is, what, this is exactly what I would do. Like, do I trust these people behind me? Maybe not, right? So it takes, it takes some effort to actually come to a place where I'm willing to trust my friends. I might be much more willing to simply lie down myself. I know I can do a good job doing that, but are they gonna catch me? Am I willing to give up control and trust that my friends are gonna catch me? I think this is the human condition. We want control. Maybe I should just speak about myself, but I see it in most of us. We want control over our lives. We want to make plans about our lives. We want to make plans where we're gonna go to college, what we're gonna study, what career I'm gonna have, what career path I'm gonna take, uh, what partner I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna marry, what my finances are gonna look like, what I'm gonna do with my finances, how's that gonna impact me and the people around me. Even things that we really know we, we have only limited uh, um, control over, like our health. We try to do the things to stay healthy. They're not bad to do, but we want control over them. And I think the worst is we even want control over our spirituality. To some extent, it's a lot easier to simply read your Bible every day and feel good about yourself than to have faith and simply have faith in Jesus Christ, and that's it. It's easier to go every week to, 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 to church and say, okay, now I feel good about myself. I kind of have some control over my own spirituality. Well, I tithe. I give 10% every month. And so it feels, again, like I'm having some kind of control. And I get to the place where maybe I don't say, I say it out loud, but I kind of have the feeling by doing those things, I am saved. But Jesus says, and Paul says, nope, that's not the way. You simply have to have faith. You simply have to fall backwards and believe somehow that the hands of God are going to be there. And you're only going to find out if you fall backwards. <laughs> Richard Rohr is a Catholic author, and I don't think this particular uh, quote comes from him originally, but he says it a lot, and I like it. He says, don't confuse the one who's pointing to the moon for the moon itself. If somebody's pointing to the moon, he's not trying to draw attention to himself. He's trying to draw, like, look over there. It's a full moon. It's beautiful. Look over there. But what we do, like what, what the Galatians were doing and the Jews were doing with the law, was the law became the object instead of God. And I think the same thing is true for the rituals that we have in our religion. Like, church service can become the thing in itself, instead of knowing that the church is actually meant to point to God. My sermon, same thing. I might be trying to draw attention to myself, but it's not about me, it's about God. And I'm trying to point towards God as best as I can. Same thing with our worship, same thing with our Bible studies. All those things are good, but if they become the object, instead of what it's pointing at, it's completely empty and nothing. So then what does it look like to live by faith? In March, I went with InterVarsity staff to Ireland. One of the things, and I have to give you a little background on my job, so I work for study abroad with InterVarsity. That specifically meant that we help students to study abroad with God at the center wherever they go. And for about 50% of our students go to Europe. 
And uh, this is a very secular environment. And so one of the things we started developing were pilgrimages. We call them journeys. And so we have one journey in Ireland. And students halfway their semester, they go there. It's for them very encouraging to reconnect with other Christians, to reconnect with, well, maybe connect for the first time with the history of Christians who've gone before. And, and they might invite a friend who, who is not a Christian and is kind of for the first time exploring this. And so one of the places we do this is, uh, is Ireland. And we follow in the footsteps of some of the people that have gone before, like St. Patrick. Might have all heard of him, right? And St. Patrick is one of those people that initially, he actually, well, I'll tell you a little bit of background of his story if you're not familiar with it. He lived in northern England, like, or really close to the border of Scotland, in still Romanized England at the time. And as a teenage boy, he got kidnapped and taken to Ireland, and he was enslaved there for multiple years as a shepherd until God spoke to him and he was able to flee. And you think, well, that's great, end of the story. Now he goes back to England and he gets another vision. And he gets a vision that God is calling him back to the people that enslaved him. And so it takes some years and it takes some studying because he wants to be prepared well, but he goes back to the place of his captures and he shares the gospel there with them. Amazing boldness, right? And so we take students to have this experience of like kind of what it looks like to live out your faith in another place. But I just said I was going there with staff, with university staff, campus ministers around, our, uh, around the country. There's about 700 chapters in the U.S. where we have campus ministers at. And so I was going there with campus ministers. And you might wonder, like, why are you doing that? Aren't you doing student ministry? Why, why are you going with staff? Well... Uh, well, first, let me show you a picture of them. I think I have a picture of them here. So this is us. You see me in my yellow gold jacket. Uh, Jamie was joking that we both got the same jacket, so now we need to go hike together. Um, but here you see our, like, see us together in Dublin uh, just before we're going to go and look inside the St. Patrick Cathedral. So this is the group of staff that I was, uh, was traveling with. And, and part of the reason why we do this with staff is because Doing campus ministry is hard, and it's really easy to become very much other-focused. You're constantly taking care of the spiritual and emotional needs of students. And when you're two or three years in, it gets difficult sometimes to make sure that you stay connected with God. And so in university, we have realized that the part of like being, like for longevity on staff, we, we want students or want staff to do things like monthly retreat. We give them one day out of the, uh, the, the month a paid retreat. So just go away, don't do work, and reconnect with God for your own best interest. Sabbath rest is another one. Even though Sundays might not work, we might have to work with students, take a day out of the week and really disconnect with the work you're doing and instead connect with God for your own purposes. And the same thing is, of course, connect with God daily. A lot of these things we should just be doing anyway, right? Like even everybody here in the church, but university gives us the ability to do that. One of the other ones is sabbatical. And I have to, like every seven years, we're invited to take a sabbatical to reconnect with God that way. Uh, it's taken me 12 years, but finally, this July, I'm going on sabbatical. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's quite amazing. So, um, so yeah, there we are again. There was a whole lot of preface to just get to Journey Ireland um, for these, these staff to reconnect with God in a, in a new place and to go into to learn more about uh, some of the Christians that have lived out their faith beforehand in uh, in Ireland. 
And uh, the one I want to share with you, it's a really fun character. A lot of these characters of the saints are really interesting because we're not always sure. We know they existed. We know they did certain things. And there's a lot of folklore around it. So I enjoyed reading some of the folklore. You're like, it's probably not true, but it shows some kind of deeper thing that people really valued about them. So St. Brendan is one of these people. He lived in 484 AD. He was probably baptized by a, by a former Druid who was converted by St. Patrick uh, about 40 years before that. So it's all kind of in a fairly, fairly short time frame that this is happening. And um, St. Brendan loved to travel. He would just go and walk all across Ireland and share the gospel with people. And he would just go wherever God would take him. And at one time or a place, he started using um, a little boat named a coracle. And I want to show you a short video. This is a video from the 1930s. Uh, it's made in, in somewhere in, in England, I think. And it just shows this how small a little coracle made out of wood and oxide is. And so I just want to give you this little fun video. So hopefully we can show that. These coracles are a type of fishing boat used by the ancient Britons 2,000 years ago. Pitched cowhide over a wicker frame, they're easily portable and thoroughly watertight. It's a highly skilled job managing a coracle with just one pedal, for there are dangerous rapids to be navigated. But it's all in a day's work to Mr. Rimmer, who's done it for years. They're not single-seaters, you know, but take two, comfortably, uh, more or less. In the calmer waters, Mr. Roy Wilson's rod and line get busy and the trout take their last fond look at the old homestead under the Dee. Fly fishing for trout may be exciting, but for a real thrill, the journey homeward down the dangerous rapids takes some beating. The slightest misjudgment and over would go the coracle, fishermen and all. And wouldn't those trout laugh? Isn't that a fun little video? Um, specifically just realizing, like watching this in like a hundred plus old theater, like these kind of videos might have actually been shown here. Um, but you see like how little control this person, I mean, he is an expert in it, right? I'm, if I would be in there, I'd probably be lying upside down. Like how little control you have when you go through the rapids. But um, Brendan took this out onto the ocean, onto the Atlantic Ocean. And this is where kind of like fact and fiction start to kind of, you're not sure. But one of the stories is, is that he, he loved to talk to sailors. And the sailor said, well, we go west. There's this whole group of people that have never heard the gospel before. And so it's said that he got in his coracle and he went up first, I think, towards um, the Faroe Islands, which is north of Great Britain, a little small island group, and then to Iceland, and then to Newfoundland. So supposedly, he made it to America. And there's this like big story in the Middle Ages called the Navigatio Sancti Brendan that is, is really well known, at least for that time period, and has full of fantastical sea creatures he meets and stuff like that. And if that is true or not, there's a guy named Tim Severin who in the 70s got in a little coracle and took him two years to make it to Newfoundland, but he did it. So I guess it's technically possible. It still sounds a little, little scary. What is true, though, is that since St. Brendan, there were many people, they were called the Peregrinati, 
and they were pilgrims that would set off on a journey with no particular destination. And they would go all across the continent of Europe. They would get in little boats like this and just set off, sometimes without even an oar, just figuring out, like, God is going to take me somewhere, and wherever that is, I'm going to get out of my coracle, and I'm going to tell people about Jesus. So that's an extreme uh, version of faith, right? And you might say, okay, Adri, you're telling all these fun stories. How is this biblical? Like, it's not biblical, it's extra biblical. But it reminded me of a story in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the 72. He sends out 72 followers. And he sends them, he says, like lamb among wolves. So there's real danger, kind of similar as if you get in a coracle on the Atlantic Ocean, right? Real danger. And he sends them two by two, and he says, do not take a purse, do not take a bag, no sandals, eat whatever people will give you. What really means here is like, don't trust in your own provision. It's going to be dangerous, but trust on God to provide for you. So it's not that, that different from the peregrinati. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't give you carte blanche to do like all the foolish things you can think of, right? Maybe getting in a coracle on the Atlantic is a foolish thing to th do. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But on the other hand, I think as a culture, we have gone so much to the part of wanting to be in control that we can be challenged by the people that said, I trust God to this extreme. I'm going to get out on a little boat and I'm going to see where God is taking me. Because I think we're often on the other side, trusting mostly in ourselves instead of God. Now, part of this, this journey, Ireland, that we did, we, we, we asked staff to pick up two stones. Um, one stone of something you want to give to God, maybe something you need to release, and the other stone something that um, you would like to receive from God. And um, I, I participated in it as well. I thought that would be a great idea. It didn't really take me very long to figure out what I needed to, needed to give up. Because, as I just mentioned, we're in the process of going on sabbatical. And uh, there's, there's a lot of prep for that, both in my job, making sure that everything is done on time, but also like just figuring out our plans of what we want to do, how the finance is going to work out. And I just really felt like I just tried to control all of it. And I kind of felt it was slipping out of my hands. And so I tried to control it even more. And so I felt like this stone, I actually picked up a stone that was particularly sharp, because that's kind of what it felt like, it's sharp edges. And then the, the, the stone that, I, like, that, that symbolized that what I wanted to receive was trust. And so I got a very smooth one for that, because that's what I felt symbolized trust. And then we got to this place. It's the Cliffs of Moher. It's the next picture. And uh, this is on the west coast of Ireland. This is about the place where Brendan uh, might have walked around. And you see these cliffs. They go sheer down. These are hundreds of feet tall. Um, those those uh, waves down there might look small, but they're massive, and they're just constantly coming at you. It was rainy, it was slippery, it was just like overwhelmed by nature, by God's creation. And that is where we ask people to toss their stone, their tone that they wanted to release, in my case, the control stone, and toss it off the cliffs. And it's kind of interesting when you're in a place that is so massive and so big, and you're standing there with your little stone, and you toss it over the cliff, and within like a second, <laughs> you just can't see it anymore. It's just gone. And then a few days later, we got to the town of Glendalough, which is a monastic city. And, and there we asked people to put the stone of trust down at one of the crosses there. And so I did that. And then I came home. And um, you might know that we're doing the Celtic way with some people here in, um, in our church, which is really this, the, this pilgrimage, but then the digital version where we do audio guide and we walk and we listen to it and then we debrief once a week. And 
And there, I, um, at a certain moment, I shared that I had tossed that stone off the, the cliffs of Moor, and uh, I hadn't told Kelly, my wife, yet. And Kelly says, oh, that makes sense now. I was wondering why you kind of were more relaxed in these kind of areas. So what I thought was funny is that I made a decision there, and it didn't just change me a little bit, but it was noticeable to others as well. Now, I want to say, too, it's like I tossed my little stone off, off the cliffs of Moor. I know I still try to hold on to control, right? It's not completely gone. It was a meaningful experience, and I think I probably need to do it again very soon. Uh, it's this one thing that we kind of just need to be reminded of. Well, one last thing that I, um, as I was thinking about the whole idea of faith and to, to how do you actually gain faith, uh, because for many years I did international student ministry and I just kept thinking about this particular um, interaction I had for, with a student for about a year where he was interested in one-on-one -on -one Bible study. After a while, we actually, he had a brother and so his brother came as well. But every time I, he loved the stories, he loved to study, but every time I asked him if he was ready to take a step of faith, he said, no, 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 I need more faith. And he, he was holding off. He said, every time I invited him to believe, he said, I need more faith. And so we kept on doing Bible study, and we weren't really going anywhere. And as I was reflecting on that, uh, I realized that faith doesn't come magically. You can't just come on Sunday to church, sit in a chair, and believe that if you just keep doing that for years, eventually you will have faith. What, what it feels really counterintuitive is that we need to take a step of faith in order to gain more faith. And even the way that Jesus connect, like, like when Jesus talks about faith, it's very counterintuitive. There's certain moments when he heals someone and he says, your faith has saved you. But another time he goes to his hometown and he couldn't do any miracles because he was amazed by their lack of faith. They needed some faith in order to receive some healing so their faith could grow. Faith, very similarly to the trust fall, comes from making a leap of faith. Faith comes from saying, I'm going to fall back, and I'm going to trust my friends are there. And then when they catch me, I gain a little bit of faith. If they drop me, <laughs> not so much. I'm probably not going to do this again. So if, if this already works like that with my friends, then how much more would taking a leap of faith with the, the God who created all things, who loves you deeply, who died for you, how much more will he catch you when you fall? And so the invitation is then to take a leap of faith so that we trust God more. So my recap then, just to kind of, because we've covered a lot of things. We are saved by faith, but not our works. Works are fine. There's lots of stuff we can do. I think Bible study is fine. A sermon is fine. I'm giving one right now. <laughs> But they're not going to save you. The law still shows us what is sinful. We cannot just disregard the entire Old Testament. The law still shows what is right and what is wrong. But it will not save us. Only faith in Jesus Christ will. And then we are invited to trust. And trust is hard, like that trust fall. Or like going to Coracle out on the Atlantic Ocean. But when we do we actually gain freedom. We're free to be who God created us to be. Free to journey with God wherever he might take us. So our faith increases by taking a leap of faith. And so, as we always do in this church, I want to leave you with a question and give you about a minute to think about it. 
Where in your life do you need to choose to trust God? Where do you need to give up control? And what does that look like? And I think we have that up there. So take a minute just to reflect on that. To close, I, I want to leave you with a prayer uh, of St. Brendan. We don't know if he wrote it or not, but you might imagine as you hear it and read it on, along uh, on the screen that you could see somebody going wherever God is calling him. But similarly, as I'm reading it to you, you don't have to read it out loud, um, imagine your own journey and see this as a blessing for you. Help me to journey beyond the familiar, and into the unknown. Give me the faith to leave the old ways and break fresh ground with you. Christ of the mysteries, I trust you to be stronger than each storm within me. I will trust in the darkness and know that my times, even now, are in your hand. Tune my spirit to the music of heaven and somehow make my obedience count for you. Amen. We have no doxology because I'm not going to lead that, so you are dismissed. <laughs>